Well, this week marks the third week in this series of rejoicing in Christ. And we're going to do things a little bit differently to how we've done in the last two weeks this morning. Uh, as I was studying for this talk and reading through Reeve's book, I felt like I was a speedboat going across a lot of deep water, uh, passing by things very fast and never taking the time to delve into the depths of what he was covering. Uh, and I didn't want that for you. <laughs> I think if we're going to rejoice in Christ, there are times where it's good to get a broad understanding, as we have in the last couple of weeks, and other times to slow down and to go a bit deeper. So this week, rather than covering everything he mentions in the chapter, I'm just going to cover one point, one, one small section, and it comes from Psalm 45. Uh, but let me uh, start by just giving the quote that we've been reading uh, from his book uh, to remind us uh, of what we're, what we're aiming for in this series. Jesus has satisfied the mind and the heart of the infinite God for eternity. If the Father can be infinitely and eternally satisfied in him, then he must be overwhelmingly all-sufficient for us. Let me read to you Psalm 45. My heart is stirred by a noble theme as I recite my verses for the king. My tongue is the pen of a skillful writer. You are the most excellent of men and your lips have been anointed with grace since God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword on your side, you mighty one. Clothe yourself with splendour and majesty. In your majesty ride forth victoriously in the cause of truth, humility and justice. Let your right hand achieve awesome deeds. Let your sharp arrows pierce the hearts of the king's enemies. Let the nations fall beneath your feet. Your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. A scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. You love righteousness and hate wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. All your robes are fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia from palaces adorned with ivory. The music of the strings makes you glad. Daughters of kings are among your honoured women. At your right hand is the royal bride in gold of Ophir. Listen, daughter, and pay careful attention. Forget your people and your father's house. Let the king be enthralled by your beauty. Honour him, for he is your lord. The city of Tyre will give you a gift. People of wealth will seek your favour. All glorious is the princess within her chamber. Her gown is interwoven with gold. Her in embroidered garments she is led to the king. Her virgin companions follow her, those brought to be with her. Led in with joy and gladness, they enter the palace of the king. Your sons will take the place of your fathers. You will make them princes throughout the land. 
I will uh, perpetuate your memory through all generations. Therefore, the nations will praise you forever and ever. For those of you that are married or have been married, do you remember the day of your wedding? Catherine and I were married 10 years ago on a beautiful warm autumn day at the beginning of March. And I still remember that being there, standing at the front of the church, my parents and soon-to-be parents-in-law, all dressed in their best and looking good, the groomsmen dressed in matching suits standing next to me, all looking sharp, and a crowd of friends and family, all smiling, joy on their faces, looking at that bright star of the occasion, me. And Catherine rocked up a little bit later and she looked all right too. (laughs) Now, (laughs) did someone say awful? (laughs) Yes. Now, I know that a comment like that would usually get me a cuff in the head if I wasn't standing up here. Um, And if my wife was here, she would receive a great deal of sympathy, I'm sure. And perhaps rightly so. But this morning, as we read this psalm, it is a wedding psalm. It's a royal wedding psalm between the king and his bride. A song that sings not about the beauty of the bride, but about the beauty of the bridegroom. There are 14 verses divided between the two descriptions given to the groom and to the bride. Eight of them are given to the groom and five to the bride. But even then, the bride's description uh, is described not in terms of her own individual beauty, but in her relationship to the king. In fact, some of her verses are more instructions in how she is to behave. It is a song that is likely sung by someone that is close to the king, someone that knows him well and sees him for who he is and the type of king that he is. And is so caught up with the beauty of this king, has a delight in him, that he is moved to sing a song at their wedding. This is a song that makes much about the king. We will see in the opening, we see in the opening verse, my heart is stirred by a noble theme as I recite my verses for the king. So we have to ask the question right at the beginning. What is it about this king that has so captured the heart and the attention of this psalmist? There are a few things to note. The first is, that the, uh, is what the psalmist points out is that the king is more excellent than any other man. He stands out from any, everyone. He is not someone that gets lost in a crowd and what stands out about him in the first instance is how he speaks, the words that he uses. It's not his height or his physique. No, the psalmist is stirred by how this king speaks to the people around him with lips anointed with grace. In a land like Israel, broken, chapped and roughened lips are at 
typical because of how dry it is. So to say that someone has a speech like lips anointed with an oil of grace speaks to whole and smooth lips, healthy. He doesn't speak with harsh words or as a pompous king or impatiently lacking understanding to the people around him. They don't drip poison or deceit. And he doesn't speak of revenge. His words are wet with grace. They are not rough to the people that he speaks with. And because of his gracious speech, God blesses him with his favour. Not for a moment or for a small time, but forever. The favour of the Lord. This is a king that has the blessing of God and it will not come to an end. The second aspect of this king's beauty that the psalmist is amazed at is his ability to wage war. Not only does he have grace on his lips, but a sword strapped to his thigh. What the psalmist has seen of this king's warfare has led him to an impression, a potent impression, to describe him as one that is mighty and glorious and majestic in battle. Well, what has he seen? How does this king wage war? He doesn't do it, it appears, for a love of war and the shedding of blood, nor to make for himself a name out of power and the dominance over the people around him. He wages war for a good purpose. Verse 4 tells us that he wages war for the sake of establishing a kingdom. A kingdom described as truth, humility and justice. The best of the kingdoms. He wages war so that he might bring nations into this kingdom. To bring them into the best kingdom. That all the people would be blessed by being a part of truth, humility and justice. Is war beautiful though? It's an odd way to describe it. Is it something that should be praised even if it results in something glorious? Do the ends justify the means? A few years ago, Catherine and I travelled to Cambodia, a country that has seen significant war in the past. Uh, Not a conflict with other countries, but a war that was from within its own borders. It was civil war. If you don't know what I'm talking about, uh, I'll explain. From 1975, for four years, Cambodia had a Marxist leader called Pol Pot, you maybe recognise the name, who instigated what was called the Khmer Rouge. The Khmer regime was a movement that sought to return the country to the Middle Ages by capturing and killing all the educated people in the country. 
25% of the population was killed. And while we were there, we visited several of what are called killing camps and killing fields, held, uh, retained there for historical purposes. Places where people were held in tiny, tiny slots in the walls that were their cells where they lived and they were tortured with devices and chemicals and ultimately killed. There were monuments built to house the skulls of the people that had been killed in the camps and they were very high. Pol Pot did not wage what we would call a beautiful war. It was horrifying. But civil war broke out against him and it ultimately ended with the Khmer regime being overthrown. What would it have been like, I wonder, to be in the killing camps on the day in which Pol Pot was overthrown? What would it have been like to be rescued and set free? The people involved in the civil war fought for what? Why would they have worked and fought against Pol Pot? But for truth, humility, justice? There's beauty in that. I believe this is what the psalmist is speaking of when he speaks of the king's beauty in the way in which he wages war. To set people free to be able to live. What is unusual to our ear, though, in this is why in the world would someone's ability to wage war, no matter how beautiful it is, be commented on in a wedding? This is no normal wedding between two young Christians in a church. It's a royal wedding. And royal weddings and war are quite strongly connected. How many people have seen the marriages between any of the royal family? Prince William or Harry's? Do you remember what they wore to their wedding day? This wasn't a black suit. They wore military regalia, military wear. Royal weddings and war go together. We can see in the description of the bride a little later on that she is in fact from another country. In verse 10, the bride is instructed to forget her people and her father's house. A standard instruction and a practice when marrying for diplomatic reasons. It is a peaceful way of waging war, loving them out. He is avoiding the bloodshed by bringing people willingly into his family. And second, it is a wedding that provides hope for a future lineage of kings, heirs to the throne, a strong and ongoing kingdom so that there would be no end to the wonder of a kingdom that is called truth humility and justice. 
And so we see that the king's, uh, the beauty of the king's ability to wage war is not unusual in a wedding song, but has a real place, a much better place if that king's warfare is to defend and fight for truth, humility and justice. The third aspect of the king's beauty is his skill in ruling that kingdom. In verse 6 and 7, we see God's kingdom, not the king's, it's God's kingdom, as being described as enduring forever, being led by God with equality and having a love for righteousness. Then partway through verse 7, the psalm swaps back to speaking of the king and his kingdom. The verse starts with a therefore, making this, the description above of how God rules his kingdom suddenly become applied to how the king rules his kingdom. So, who are these beautiful descriptions of rulership describing? The descriptions of leading a kingdom with equality and a love for righteousness. Are they speaking about God? Or are they speaking about this king? The answer, I believe, is that the king rules in such a way that in every action of his, every proclamation that he makes, every decision that he makes, is in perfect unison with God. The king's rulership is godly rulership in the way in which he rules. One cannot separate the actions of the king that we are describing from the actions of God. And it's because the king rules in such a pleasing way that he receives another blessing, a blessing of the oil of gladness beyond his companions. This is the second blessing that is mentioned in the psalm. It's the second oil that has been mentioned and the second time that the king has been described as being above all other men. And this time, rather than receiving the blessing of gracious speech, the king gets the oil of gladness. What a wonderful blessing it is to be filled with gladness all the days of your life. Not a king who is crabby, or frustrated, or stressed. Not a king that is unpleasant to be around and is avoided in the halls of his own kingdom. But one who is filled with an oil of gladness. And what a joy it must have been to be around this king. You can see the blessings of the Lord overflow from the king into his halls, filling them with pleasant and beautiful things. It says that his own robes smelt wonderful. The servants could walk down the hall and smell the lovely scent in the air and know that their beloved king is around. He also has stringed instruments playing in his halls for the delight of those who hear them. And the women that he has in his courts 
are not ordinary by any measure, but they are the daughters of kings. And at his right hand stands the queen in the wealthiest and most expensive of golds. All of this wealth and smell and sound and sight would take the breath away every day just to be near this king and in his kingdom. All of it because of who he is and the way that he rules being pleasing to God. Who is the queen that stands near the king? The bride-to-be, perhaps, or the queen mother? The text isn't entirely clear, but as it is a wedding song, it is likely not describing the bride as the queen uh, at this time. In the following verses, she's in fact described as a princess. Likely what we're seeing here is that it is his mother standing by him, dressed in gold as a mark of his success, that she is dressed in the richest of clothing. The psalm then moves for a time from singing about the king's beauty to speaking about the bride. And what it says is not a description of her beauty, as you would expect, but a series instead of instructions or encouragements from the psalmist to her. You could wonder if the bride was perhaps getting cold feet and needed a bit of encouragement on the day. Verse 10 calls her to listen. Consider the words of the psalmist. What are these words? First, forget your people and your father's house. This bride, that's a clue, this bride is from a foreign land and has left her family behind. She has entered into a new culture and is about to be married to the king. But it is hard for her to let her family go. But if she can forget them, if she can stay the course and marry the king, he will, it says, he will desire her beauty. If she lets go of where she came from and secures her future to him, she will not be left unwanted or uncertain of her future. Her fate will be assured, a future where she is desired like a treasure in the eyes of the king. As a thing of beauty and wonder to him. He is all that she will have. And there's a tension there. Because how he sees her, how he treats her, is vital for whether she can get married whether she can remain. But the psalmist is sure the king will see her as nothing less than beautiful and desirable. Secondly, she's instructed that the king will be her lord. She is to bow or worship him. She is likewise to be humble and to know her place inside of the kingdom. She will be the desired wife and queen, but he is her lord 
as the king and her husband. Is it any wonder that the psalmist reminds her of her humble position when the verses go, go on to tell the bride of her power in the eyes of the surrounding nations? The people of Tyre, likely one of the wealthiest in the time, will seek her favour with gifts because of how important she has become as that bride of the queen, that bride of the, the king. People of even the highest stations will go out of their way to impress her because of her connection to him. Through her marriage, she will be above everybody else. Still, she will not be above the king. And her attitude and relationship with him is to be one of worship. Instruction and encouragement complete, the psalmist moves to describe the bride on her wedding day and her procession from the preparation chamber to the king. First, the question that is always on the minds of those attending weddings, even until today, is what does that dress look like? That's a little different to what we're used to. It is not pure white gown. She is dressed in a dress of many colours, threaded and woven with gold and embroidered, and she is eye-catching with the amount of colour and wealth that she is displaying. It's not just that she is beautiful in her own rights, but the king has dressed her in beauty. Her beauty comes from him. As she walks towards the king, she has a train of attending women following behind her. She is unique among her, uh, among these women in the procession, among all of her virgin companions. She is the first to be married. She is the first among women. And they're not bitter or biting at one another or filled with envy like some bridesmaids can become. They are all filled to bursting with joy that she gets to marry the king. The song then moves again, as it did from describing the king to the bride, and now the psalmist sings of the beauty of a future kingdom for this king. And it's beautiful, because it will go on forever and ever through the sons of this king and this queen. The king's gracious speech, his method of warfare for justice, humility and truth, his way of ruling in a godly manner will be passed on from generation to generation so that this kingdom would never have an end. More so, his sons will become princes, Emissaries, it says, and agents of the, this wonderful king to the rest of the world. They will operate in his power 
And verse 16 says that they will take up places within all the earth. Nowhere is left without the influence of this king. And for generations, the world will celebrate him by singing the very song of Psalm 45. The psalmist in the final verse refers to himself. I will cause your name to be celebrated in all generations. Therefore, the people will praise you forever and ever. Now, the question we are left wondering at the end of this psalm is, who is this king? In history, there's a great deal of uncertainty among scholars as to who the psalmist is describing, at whose song, did, at whose wedding did he sing. Some think it may have been King Ahab when he married Jezebel. But if you know your Bible even slightly well, they're not a great couple. Uh, king Ahab is an evil king and Jezebel is the definition of sinister. Together they promoted the worship of Baal, uh, a false god, and Jezebel had a particular fondness for feeding the prophets of God to her dogs. Would the psalmist be singing the glories of this royal couple? I can't see that happening. Solomon is another likely choice as he was the most successful king in Israel's history. Known for his God-given wisdom, he led the nation into immense prosperity and started to have global influence. But he also made decisions that were wise only according to the world at times and not according to God. His marriage alliances to Egypt were in direct disobedience to God's decrees in Deuteronomy. While this song was used at royal weddings, it was also sung at times of exile. When the kingdom of, uh, kingdom of Babylon had ca- captured Jerusalem and the Davidic line was all but lost, the Israelites still sang this at their weddings. Who were they singing about? It seems that they instead sung with hope that one day this king would arrive. And his forever kingdom would set them free and rule in the place of kingdoms like Babylon. The answer, of course, as to who this king is, is that all of these attributes and beautiful descriptions of this perfect king apply entirely and only to one person. Whether the psalmist was aware of it or not, he sang of Jesus. The grace-covered lips in the speech and words we see in Scripture. His victorious warfare on behalf of truth, humility and righteousness when he defeated death and the devil. 
the way that he rules his kingdom in total harmony with the remaining figures of the Godhead, perfectly in unison with all that the Father desires. And he reigns with equality and righteousness and a hatred of wickedness. How he is above every other man, blessed by God and anointed with gladness. This is Christ, the King. Whether the psalmist knew it or not, he sang of him. And when the people in exile sang, although they did not have a Davidic king any longer, they sang in hope of Christ. Hope that a king like him would rise up and defeat their enemies and establish what is only described as a beautiful kingdom that would last forever. And that king did come, though he did not come in the form that they expected. He came as one of us, humble. We too sing this song today, but we sing not with questions of its accuracy of the description of a mortal king, not with a hope that a king will appear, but with a total assurance that this is Jesus, our beautiful king. And we are the bride, the church, taken from a foreign land, the land of darkness, and instructed to intentionally forget where we have come from and our old love for that land and the securities that we found in it so that we might be fully bound to him and desired and found and made beautiful by that king, dressed in his glory and his riches. And we are for him. And we are placed in a position of incredible power as the bride of Christ, desired by those in the heavenly realms. The angels wish they were us. We will call him king and husband and worship at his feet. And yet for all of the beauty that we see of this king in this passage and his power, what we read of in the New Testament is that this king was lifted upon a cross. His beauty was disfigured by the hands of men and even more so by their sin. Isaiah 52 says, See my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted just as there were many who were appalled at him. His appearance so disfigured beyond that of any human being and his form marred beyond human likeness. Reeves says his beard was pulled out. 
his body pierced and lacerated, bloodied, beaten, spat upon. This king in his beauty became gruesome and horrifying to behold. But that was just the point. As Isaiah goes on, surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him and by his wounds we are healed. Martin Luther used to tell the story, the gospel story, as the story of a king marrying the poor girl of ill repute. At their wedding she would say to him, those words that we've heard before, all that I am I give to you and all that I have I share with you. And in that moment she shares with him all her debts, all her shame. And the king replies, all that I am I give to you and all that I share, I have I share with you. At which the wretched girl becomes a queen and all the kingdom is hers. Just so our great bridegroom has taken all our sin, our death, our judgment and he shares with us his life, his perfect righteousness. He has become poor that we might share his riches. It is the great marriage swap or what Luther calls the joyful exchange. Christ is one with his people, with his bride. All that is his becomes theirs and all that is theirs becomes his. His willingness to be humiliated and to die our death and suffer in our place shows us the depth and the dedication of his love. Sib said that Christ was never more lovely to his church than when he was deformed for his church. It's not the cross in which we rejoice, nor even the joyful exchange, as Luther puts it. These are wonderful things. But even more so, it is that king, that beautiful king that loved his church unto death in which we rejoice. Let's bow our heads and pray. Heavenly Father, we give thanks for the time this morning to be able to look and see your Son as King. To see him, I hope, Lord, uh, not just in words, uh, but get caught up in the beauty of what it meant for him to be King, of who he is as King, of the way in which he rules, of the kingdom that he fights for to, to create,
and to establish for all of eternity the wonder of, of your Son as King, as most beautiful, and yet so willing in order to secure his bride to take upon them, take upon himself all the debt, the anger of God against our sin, all of our shame and our guilt, and to give us all that he had, his beauty. Lord, to secure us and call us desired and to dress us in his righteousness. Heavenly Father, I pray that this is not just mere words for us, but something that is alive and true, that when we hear this gospel truth, that we would rejoice in Christ. In him, not in the things around him. The one that would love us unto death. Let this be an encouragement for us, Lord, for the rest of our lives. As we continue to seek after you, filled with joy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.